everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're sitting down with social profit entrepreneur, Betsy Saul, the co-founder of PetFinder, chairman of PetFinder Foundation, and the founder of 911 Foster Pets and Heal House Call Veterinarian. Here at Cuddly, we align greatly with mission-based work. So we were so excited to bring Betsy on to discuss her insanely driven journey through animal welfare and the power of the enthusiastic yes. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. And for all of you rescuers out there, Betsy has a special offer for you and your vets at the end of this episode. So hang in there. We are so ready for this. So let's get started. Hi, Betsy. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. Good. I'm so glad to hear it. And we're so grateful to have you on. I'm super excited to get into all of your background and experiences. I'm sure just so many people may already know who you are, but just as a very high level overview, I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of your background for those who may not know. First, I'll say, Bridget and Sydney, thank you so much for having me. Uh, We were just talking in the pre-interview interview, and I was saying I've been working on some of the social profit missions I've been working on for so long that I have a very difficult time separating myself from them. And you were asking me very intriguing questions like, what's my title? And I was like, uh, stumped. (laughs) And I bet there are a lot of people um, that are in your listener base who are so immersed in their missions that they can identify with that. Like, where where do I stop and where does my mission start is become a very blurred line. So thank you already for opening my (laughs) like <laughs> making me think. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we put people on the spot too, right, Sydney? Yeah. We're like, what's your title? And they're like, I guess I should make one up right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, I have this varied background. I'm the founder of PetFinder and PetFinder.com Foundation or PetFinder Foundation and 911 Foster Pets, which is involves some of the plight of pets that we weren't able to address at PetFinder, but always frustrated me. I didn't want to leave those pets behind, so to speak. So we created 911 Foster Pets after I sold PetFinder. And then ultimately, I also am involved in an initiative that is sort of a love mark in the way that PetFinder was for me and for others, which is Heal House Call Veterinarian, which is trying to encourage house call vets to, to have the resources that they need to be house call vets, to not, I mean, to have work-life balance, to not feel like they're necessarily having the soul sucked out of him, which is what a lot of veterinarians are describing their experience as right now. All of these things together sort of inform my attitudes towards those in the pet industry and our colleagues. It's been really interesting. I'm so incredibly blessed for being able to join the animal welfare industry in the 90s and watch it go from, I think when I started PetFinder, we were euthanizing 16 to 20 million animals a year in the US at the time. And now we're, you know, talking about like, how do we save the pets that are so behaviorally challenged that back in the day, there wouldn't have even been a chance for them to get adopted. What a wonderful trajectory we've been on. And that's obviously come with some pain that fast growth comes with for everybody in the industry. But I think 
podcasts like yours are, are cool because you're sort of engaging these communities on a human level in a way and connecting people in a way that that's desperately needed, especially the last couple of years, right? Like as we've become more social media focused and more pandemic responsive by sequestering into our tiny bubbles. I think this is great. What a nice way for you guys to lean in and create this so that we could all connect. Absolutely. I know it feels so bizarre because you look at social media and it does feel a bit reductive of any sort of issue. I mean, you look at, as soon as you see the word, like, I mean, we've talked about owner surrender, for instance, and yep. and all of a sudden there's a lot of emotions that come out of that, but really being able to talk to people about like what goes into that and how heartbreaking, and really these are not bad people. They're forced and often really horrible situations to do this. And it, so anyway, so I, yeah, we do love highlighting that human level to things. I was at an animal welfare uh, speech one time at a conference way back. And a woman said, okay, everybody raise your hand. If you ever relinquished a pet to a shelter and this is all animal welfare people and people were kind of sat on their hands. And then eventually like one person put their hand up and then a couple of other people and you know, it turns out like a huge part of the room had had some sort of crisis or divorce or issue in their life where they had to re- move an animal that they had, you know, and I, of course, hadn't relinquished a pet to a shelter myself, but, you know, once they expanded that to who's had to leave a pet at home with mom and dad while you were dealing with a crisis, you know, and give it up that way, then we've all been, I've become to the conclusion that we are all at every moment, a potential adopter or relinquisher or person in need or friend and neighbor who can help foster a pet while someone's in the hospital or someone who's going to go to the hospital who needs somebody to take care of their pet for a while. Like all of these different people, rescuer. I was an urban tree planter. My background's in groundwater hydrology. I don't have any business starting pet finder or fostering pets or, you know, any of these things I do working with vets, you know, like we have this opportunity to be so many people. And I think we're getting a lot better at trying to create in animal welfare, a judgment-free zone. I mean, not that we don't all judge a little bit. I mean, let's get real, right? <laughs> like we could do the same game. Like who here hasn't stolen a pet, you know? <laughs> because, <laughs> you know so. But I do think we're getting better and there are very fledgling nascent industry of animal welfare is really developing some moral chops that are something to be proud of. And so you mentioned your background is not necessarily that of like, zoologist or or whatever else would bleed into animal welfare, like organically, I mean, rolling back the clock a whole bunch, why and how did you start PetFinder? It was a tiny moment of insanity, I think. (laughs) I say all the best ideas are. I know, right? I know, yeah. It's a story that is only interesting in how disappointing it is. My, because I would love to say that I met this fantastic dog. And I thought, never again, somebody like you, like the Maddie's Fun folks have a great story, right? Like they're like, never again will another dog suffer. Now my ex and I were driving down the road in New Jersey to celebrate New Year's Eve with some good friends of ours at Olive Garden, which, you know, we were still all in graduate school and that was like big spending, (laughs) very exciting to get to go out to eat. And we're driving down the road talking about this World Wide Web, which was this brand new thing, highly controversial. and we were saying like, what would be the perfect website? Like the perfect website would be, most websites, by the way, were really super succulicious back then, right? Like they were like gray and they had, you're nodding like, you know what I mean, but you're too young to know what I mean. (laughs) You you have to go to the way back machine on the internet. (laughs) But they're they're like, they're basically, they were either university sites, which 
were not compelling reading for most people, or they were they were corporate like scans of or black and white or grayscale like representations of annual reports. And, like it was really grim. There were a couple hundred thousand websites online when we started Petfinder. There were two about animals that we could find. This is very early days, right? So Yahoo existed and some other folks like that, but very early days. We had, um, so we're playing this, like just this geeky thing about like the internet's so cool, but like, like what would make the perfect website? Cause we were complaining about how like cool it is and also disappointing it is. Right. So, and I said, it would be database based, right? Like it'd be like some way to look at information that would be way too cumbersome if you had to print something. And I had worked in high school for a woman that was a real estate agent. And we used to have these MLS catalogs where the houses for sale in the area were all printed. And like, imagine that, right? Like we can't even comprehend that today, but you would have to go to a giant book and look through little tiny pictures and little descriptions. It's sort of like the ones they put in the newspaper now and the real estate page, but like, like that for all the houses. And so I, and like, like, gosh, if you could search and sort and say, you know, I want a two-bedroom house and I want a yard and be able to imagine like that would have been so cool. And so we put all these criteria for what would make the perfect, like what, were, what was the perfect content for a website and designed as we're driving down the road, what is now we know as realtor.com. And boy, what a different trajectory that would have been. I would have been a very, very wealthy woman much, much, much earlier. But I said, ah, but there'd be one final criteria. I, at the time, was in charge of the community forestry program for the state of New Jersey. And every once in a while, I'd get enough money and a budget to do a three or four color print job. And the rest of the time, we were always doing, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, like we could, you know, imagine with the World Wide Web, this could be full color exposure, which is like some things work better in full color, right? And of course, I'm still thinking of the MLS stuff. And I'm like, but really, what would be really cool is if it was content that was like, societally useful content. Like that would be the final cream cherry on the top of the Sunday, right? Is, is if it was for some public good. And I was thinking urban forestry, you know, these kinds of things. And kind of at the same time, we had this thought like, oh my gosh, animals and animal shelters. And we got goosebumps. And, you know, at that point, I remember saying, gosh, if we did this by the, you know, it's an hour to our dinner place. And I'm like, if we did this, we'd have to decide it could be a lot of work, right? And we both had these budding careers in very different worlds. And I said, if we were to do this, we'd have to come up with some thing that would give us permission to stop doing it if we needed to. Like, like if we could save two lives a month, then it would be worth it. And so we just said, all right, well, if we could save two lives a month, then any amount of work we do in the evening would be worth it. And so let's like have that be our goal. We're going to see if we can get two pets adopted from a shelter. So we couldn't afford the long distance phone calls to call all the shelters in New Jersey. So our friends were from South Jersey and we were like, they, they lived in different area codes. And so they called the shelters in their area code while we called the shelters in our area code. Again, this, because I'm an old person, I guess this is when it used to cost money to call somebody on the other side of the state. So we did. And the first person I called was a shelter who's a rescue group, actually, whose flyer was posted at the grocery store and they did flea market pet adoptions. This is a group called Animal Rescue Force. And this woman named Susan Ragland, who is an absolute hero, or the Newark Animal Shelter, who was just really struggling with a terrible situation in Newark and animals in Newark were, were not receiving the care that they needed in general, just because the resources were so slim there. These are the sort of like very different kinds of groups that we were working, that I called in the first time. And the, but, the, but the first person I called 
said, there's no way I'm going to put my pets on the internet for those perverts. <laughs> because at the time, that's what the internet was. Like there are these bulletin boards and these stories every night on the news that people were lurking around and trying to find children to be rude to. We didn't know about the link really yet. This is in the 90s. So we hadn't, there wasn't all that information about the link and I wasn't involved in animal welfare. So I was completely wrong. But what I said is I said, I don't know somebody who's a pervert sitting at home all day doing whatever on their computer might be a great cat owner. <laughs> you know, like, like, like maybe they're home all day. Maybe they don't ever go out. Maybe, you know, like now, of course, we know that there's a link between the way people treat animals and people. So like, that's just my own personal embarrassment to not know that at the time. But we, so we started and it was like a snowball rolling down the hill and we were just killing ourselves to try to keep up with it while we did our day jobs, you know, and you fast forward now and PetFinder, when I sold PetFinder, we were doing two and a half, three million adoptions a year that shelters all across the country. Uh, within about two years, the shelters in New Jersey told us that they'd cut their euthanasia rate in half. And that's where we started. Oh my gosh. That's a little heady. It completely ruined me for anything else forever. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, like I'm completely unemployable now. I couldn't have a normal boss if it killed me because I spent 15 years flipping a switch and saving a million lives, you know, <laughs> like, you know, that kind of impact. And I think that you, you experienced some of that at Cuddly, right? Like when you have the ability to talk to so many people, enact change and facilitate change, that can mess you up. So like, you know, I tried to retire early, you know, after I sold PetFinder and, you know, I would do these things that were bucket list things. And I'm like, yeah, but what purpose did it serve? And it, it's taking me, it, it's, it, you know, like I'm, I'm still not cured of that. Like I really struggle with the fact that if I haven't had a good productive day where I've made a difference in some life out there that I think that I haven't earned the oxygen I've spent. There are worse things in the world. There are. Than feeling like you want to save at least a life every day. That's, mm -hmm. that's an amazing goal. <laughs> There are worse things, but you know, everybody that listens to your podcast may be in this world in some way. And there, it's also not a small thing to carry that load. Mm -hmm. And it is addictive and it is a burden. And I've met so many people who don't pay the power bill because they are going to rescue one more pet or don't pay, you know, and, and I think a lot of the organizations, you guys are motivated to help on Cuddly. There are a lot of people in those organizations that can relate to this feeling of not, you know, of not being able to do enough. And, you know, we have to resist that because as long if, you know, if we're always operating, I say this all the time, makes people crazy because I say it so much, but if we're always operating by the amygdala, you know, our old brain, you just can't possibly bring your most creative, good problem solving self to the table for your organization, for your mission, for your pets, for your company. You, you've got to not be working in an over worked, overburdened, stressed situation because our body responds to that and everything, you start working amygdala or old brain, you know, sort of feedback response loop really does hamper the way your the good reasoning, rational, intelligent part of your front brain does its job, you know? So I wish that I saw this industry getting personally healthier. I think we, we continue to get professionally healthier as an industry, but I'm not sure the trends are pointing that way personally. Gives me chills for you to say that too, because I, I feel like with a lot of the rescues I work with, that's something that they, they deal with on a daily basis. They do so many good things. They could save a hundred pets in a matter of a month, but they lose one and they focus on that one and it beats them up and they beat themselves up. They blame themselves. 
they split apart because their board has a rift, you know, like the whole, yeah. They focus on the one that they couldn't save versus just feeling so good about the hundreds that they did. And it's that mindset that really kills them in the end. And it's so heartbreaking to have to listen to them, beat themselves up, like just attack themselves over it. And it's, you're completely right. Like you said, it gives me chills because I, I feel like that's something I'm always telling them is that you just have to focus on the good. The good is going to push you forward. If you're always focusing on the one thing that went wrong or the one that failed, then you're just not going to go forward. Yeah. Well, there, and then there are a couple of like sort of trite truisms, right? That accompany that. And one is that thing that, you know, we've heard all our lives that we really need to embody, which is that you, we've got to focus on the things that we have in common rather than our differences, right? Like that's, and that's what those organizations you wish, I wish that was easier for people. I'm particularly blessed because it's super easy for me. I like, I'm typically, I have some sort of like combination of, from my parents, thank you, mom and dad, you know, some combination of self-worth and attention deficit and other kinds of things that allow me to just be blindly positive and be like, all right, well, we learned something there. Let's move <laughs> on. You know, like, and it's always confusing to me when people can't figure that out or when I get stuck in a rut and I can't figure that out. And that's how, when I know my old brain is taken over. And then, you know, the other thing is Mary Kay Ash, who is not something, not a person who's invoked in animal welfare very often, but maybe should be Mary Kay Cosmetics, the founder of Mary Kay Cosmetics was this incredibly wise entrepreneur. And she would say in her training takes 10 no's to get a yes. And even outside of sales and marketing, like I think about that a lot, like whether that's adoptions or finding a vet that will cooperate for whatever you're doing or, you know, like whatever the rescue or the foster group or whatever, you know, whatever they need, like what, there are so many times that you think, okay, well, but we asked the vet and they wouldn't help us. Okay. Have you asked 10 vets or we tried this and it didn't work? Have you? So that I think that if you could merge, right? Like if we could ask for anything for the people in animal welfare and the people who love pets, maybe it would be that we could merge all those truisms and really infuse them with this ability for self-love and acceptance and just to care a little bit less what other people think they can do. You know, it's like Petfinder. We People would ask us, why do you think you were successful with Petfinder? And obviously we were lucky because of timing. Nothing else like it existed. It's literally nothing. Like I said, there were two animal sites on the internet at the time, but a good deal of it was because that's like, how did you start this site about promoting pets that need adoption? But, but really what we created with Petfinder was a culture and a company that still 20 years later is alive and well and thriving and still driving adoptions, which is crazy. That's really hard to do. Right. And I think one of the main answers to why that worked is because we had no business doing it. Like we didn't come to the table with a bunch of ideas that with much fixed rules on what you can do. We didn't have an MBA. We didn't have any of those things. And we sort of were guided by this awareness that we didn't know what we were doing and that the only option we had was to make the best decisions we could based on what will get the most pets adopted, making sure that we only work with people we wanted to wake up in the morning and have meetings with, you know, like there are some things that turn out to be really good business decisions, you know, like the community is important and we need to be forgiving and giving and you know, we need to all get our like sort of Buddhist acceptance hats on more often, probably. Well, yeah, I feel like you've touched on so many good points, even mm-hmm. just up to this point. I do love what you said too, about like, in the very beginning, you were telling yourself just two animals and you're like setting this goal for yourself. Because I know that's what so many of our rescues do, right? Like they take in one animal and they're like, it's okay. If I just save one animal at a time, that's better than nothing. And certainly that's sustainable. So I I love what also you're saying about like over putting too much emphasis on 
every single action that you do. And I know so many of our rescues, it's like they're compromising so many things in their lives because then they can afford other things for their animals. And it just ends up being unsustainable at a certain point because if you're just killing yourself and being a martyr for the cause, eventually one day you're just going to be like laying on the floor, unable to continue on. (laughs) Right. Hey, so, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was, so I'm going to talk about sex now. And suddenly our subscribers go up by like a (laughs) hundred. That's because I'm so engaging. (laughs) Not the topic at all. No, but you know, like, so like I grew up, I had pretty socially liberal parents who were educated and cool. And I was super lucky. And my mom on the very top shelf, but they were like conservative at the same time, right? My mom was a public librarian, so I don't have to say anymore. So up on the very top shelf of the bookshelf was this book called Our Bodies Ourselves. And I don't know if you've heard of this book, but every human on the planet should read it. It's Our Bodies Ourselves, a book for and by women. And it has like all the things you never knew you wanted to know about everything from STDs to sexuality to what different breasts look like all lined up in photos. And it's like a really neat sort of deep dive into the things that like how to have an orgasm just all across the board. And it was a part of that movement, you know, in the 60s and 70s where women were becoming empowered and we were able to talk about things like that. So this is way up on the top shelf. So my mother put it there very cleverly, knowing that if it was there and out of reach, it might actually be a book that I would look at at some point <laughs> uh, because it was in the, you know, like adult book section. And sure enough, I did. So in it, it had a section that was basically the just say no section. And it's written for women by women. You know, there's a whole thing like no, no means no. And when you say no, you need to, you deserve to have that be respected. And, you know, and there, there's definitely that sense of it because this was an empowered book. So my son, he'll kill me for talking about him on a podcast. He listens to podcasts all the time. So my son's going off to college and I'm like, you know, you need this book. Like <laughs> I'm sending you with a book and my daughter's going off to college. They were just two years apart. And so I decided I'm, I'm going to send them off to college with this. Well, my daughter said that it was really cool because the girls in her dorm room would come around in a circle and they would read out loud and they explore it. And that's kind of cool, right? That's neat. That's kind of what I intended. And my son, of course, was mortified. I have the internet. Why do I need that? And I'm like, well, you know, with the internet, you get to self-select your topics. This is kind of different. Like, this is an old timey thing. This is called a book. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. So anyway, so when I was convincing him to read it, and when my daughter, who was ahead of him, had said that they were doing this, I'm like, huh, I should read it. So I opened up this new edition. This is actually going to relate to our story, I promise. So I opened up this new edition, and in and amongst all of the pictures of penises and breasts and things that like we're all curious about, like what others look at as like a primer for our own sexuality. There's this whole new section, right? And this new section, in addition to having some new LGBTQ terminology and things, is followed by another section that talks about the enthusiastic yes. Okay. And this is where it gets kind of life-changing. So the idea is this book taught me something I'd never considered before. And I'm an enthusiastic yeser, right? Like, you know, like I'm, yes, girl, like the it was the Oklahoma, the musical you know, has the, you know, I'm just a girl who can't say no. And like opportunity to me is like this elixir, right? I just love change. I love opportunity. So this caught my eye, this enthusiastic yes business. And they said, you know, like, it's not enough to say no. It's not enough that your girlfriend wants to say no. It's not, or if she says no, if you're going to consent to have sex, you need an enthusiastic yes. And that's the only, the only time that it's appropriate to have sex. So. You need to, if you're thinking about having sex and you're a girl, 
you need to be prepared to give an enthusiastic yes. And if you're thinking about having sex with a girl, then you need to get an enthusiastic yes. And this idea that we go from a no means no to a concept of enthusiastic yes has really changed the way I think about all kinds of choices in life when I'm mentoring people or when I'm talking to people, when I think about employees because or volunteers. Like there's a difference between, yeah, I can take a foster and, you know, hell yeah, I'm ready for this. And there's a difference between, will you be on the such and such committee versus, hey, I don't want to be left out of the such and such committee. And that difference in our life, you know, when we look around, what are the things we're doing? What are the things we're engaged in, in our rescue, in our work, whatever, where we could legitimately say that it's an enthusiastic yes, because, you know, we've got limited time. And so when you talk about, Bridget, when you talk about like, I can save one pet a month, if you can save one pet a month with an enthusiastic yes for everything that process involves, then that's something you should do. But if to save one pet enough, you have to be uh, sort of the equivalent of the no means no, or the yes means eh, I can do it, which I find myself saying like, well, I can do that. I don't want to do that, but I can do it. Then that's a whole different thing. And you should not do one pet a month if you can't do it with an enthusiastic yes, I think, because you're not doing it. We're doing more so-so is not as good as doing less great. And Sydney, in your experience with veterinarians and offices, right? Wouldn't you love to go back and tell so many of them, take the cases that are enthusiastic yeses. Mm-hmm. Take the, allow yourself to say no sometimes when it's not an enthusiastic yes, because we, we deserve that, right? Like, and so this enthusiastic yes thing, I don't know, somehow it relates to almost everything that we're doing in, the, in our daily lives. And I think this book that was on the very top shelf, that was very naughty for me to read. <laughs> don't you love that? Oh, I do. I think that's amazing. And it is interesting looking back, like how many times am I saying yes enthusiastically? (laughs) I was thinking that as you're talking, I was like, how many enthusiastic yes do I have a day, like throughout my job or what I do? It's a really interesting like perspective. And like, it almost makes you like reflect on yourself and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that, you know, I look back and I, I think about the things about which I think there was an enthusiastic yes. And it's, sometimes with relationships, sometimes, but not all the time, you know, well, gosh, that's a lot of time spent in relationships where it wasn't an enthusiastic. Yes. Like that whole, like last half of the relationship where I'm like, Oh, I don't know if this is working. out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to find it like a, where you're spending all that time trying to find a graceful exit, you know, and that relationships, nothing right. Jobs, career, you know, like I, I think sometimes a job needs to be a job so that we can afford to do the rescue we want to do later, right? Like sometimes things are a, right. eh, so that we can do the enthusiastic yes thing, whether that's climbing or rescuing a cat or whatever. But it's a worthwhile question, I think, to ask yourself every once in a while. Like what are... Well, and looking at your car ride that you took, I mean, it's very clear that that was such an enthusiastic yes, where you're just like, well, we've already thought of it now on this hour-long car ride. No, we, we can't not do we it. We have to do it. I don't know if that was an enthusiastic guess. That may have been more like, once you've had this thought, can you... Like, I felt this ethical imperative, mm-hmm. and I know that you can relate to this, but I didn't feel like I had a choice not to do it, right? Like, if, wait, if I've had this thought and I can do it, and there's no reason I shouldn't do it, and I could save a life, then don't I have to do it? You know, we, that, we, we encountered that with some trepidation because like I said, like, is this going to derail my career as an urban tree planter? Thank God, yes, it did. <laughs> you know, like, you know, absolutely. But you know, my mom says this was inevitable. Like I was three years old and trying to befriend snakes 
and make pets out of things that had no interest in being my pet, even though I was pretty convinced that I wanted to be my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Beyond pet finder, because I know a lot has happened since, since the great boom of, of pet finder. I know that you've been working now with 911 foster pets, which I feel like is, and you'll have to let us know exactly how, how that got started and, and grew out, but I know has to have been so important over the past 18 months, year here, as so many things were shifting out of actual facility locations and people couldn't really interact that much. How did that really grow as a company? Well, it's, that's interesting. So it, we started that also in about 2014. My friends, Eric and Tracy and I, who were all involved in Pet Finder and Pets Incredible and Pet Video, they were moved by continuing to want to help shelters. And we had sold our sort of shelter initiative, right? Pet Finder. And I was still working with Pet Finder at the time. But I was always frustrated by the fact that in animal welfare with Pet Finder, we had to be agnostic to the shelter situation, right? So because we were serving shelters, we needed to treat a shelter that had a 100% euthanasia rate almost, or 99% euthanasia rate with the same as we treated a shelter with a 1% euthanasia rate. And that was the right thing to do, especially at the time. But there's still this reality of the pet that's in the shelter at a shelter with a really high euthanasia rate could stand to be treated a little differently than the pet from a marketing perspective, right? Than the pet who's safe and sound. So that it was the right thing to do, but there were still these pets that, and this, these issues that we knew there were all these pets that weren't making it to adoption row because of some reason. And just promoting shelters and the pets in them equilaterally sort of like, or, you know, equally was, was what, that was the ticket at the time when all pets needed so much help and all communities needed so much help. But as we moved into a zone where we kind of knew how to get dogs adopted and we kind of knew and we hadn't quite quick cracked the nut on cats and, and certainly free roaming cats continue to be a real problem from an animal welfare perspective. But we sold Pet Finder. We were kind of talking about our regrets for what we didn't get to fix yet. And these concepts were this idea of like, what about those pets that only have two weeks to live? You know, like we were always at Pet Finder frustrated when people would post and, you know, take over the homepage and say two weeks only, because then other shelters would say, Hey, this isn't fair because they're, you know, just because we're a nice shelter, it doesn't, it's not fair that those pets get this all capitals billing. Will you ask them to take that down? And I mean, you could see how that would be like a problem, right? Right. So we're like, well, what if Eric and Tracy and I were talking about like, what if we made a site that was just for pets who were like within two weeks of being euthanized and made it about pet centric instead of instead of shelter-centric. Would we be competing with PetFinder? Probably not. Like we probably wouldn't be threatening at all to them. And so that, you know, we could like from a spiritual perspective, that would feel okay to us. And so that's where 911 Foster Pets started. There's this idea that there are pets in desperate need. There are, we believe that there is a foster hero in every neighborhood and that shelter people shouldn't have to euthanize pets in their care just because of space, timing, or age. And there's enough people in the community. Like we had 6 million people a month, unique visitors visiting PetFinder when I sold PetFinder. So we have 6 million people a month doing any one thing. There aren't that many pets in shelters waiting to get adopted. You can put those people to work, right? So we believe that there's already a foster hero on every corner. Those people that are engaged in pets in a very different way or want to be, they just don't know they're a foster hero, right? They don't know they're a potential foster home or a potential foster home network promoter, like whatever, what, you know, there's so many ways that people can help, not just fostering, but they can share on Facebook, they can share on, you know, Instagram. So, you know, and these foster heroes, we thought could 
that we have yet to identify, right? Could save the day because they can temporarily care, temporarily care for shelter pets at risk and they could help owned pets ride out temporary storms and crisis. And at the end of the day, what we're talking about is maintaining a family bond so that that pet never, ever, ever maybe becomes a shelter statistic at all. And maybe it never enters the shelter. So we had this dream of first helping shelters deal with those pets that truly were desperate. And in the back of my mind, I always had this idea of peer-to-peer, like maybe pets shouldn't go to the shelter at all. Like maybe we could have this great community network. You know, I truly believe that community fostering can be that tool that stems the tide of pets entering shelters. And we need to acknowledge that animal welfare is a shared community experience. You know, it's an enterprise that is fundamentally local and fundamentally community. So fostering provides relief to shelters and increases adoptability because the pets are in homes and they can continue with training, facilitates more informed adoptions because we can know more about a pet who's in a home. It empowers pet lovers to be able to do something that they couldn't do normally. Like I can't maybe adopt a pet right now in my life because I'm about to go off to grad school, but I can sure keep a pet for three weeks. So we built this site that would empower them through innovative tools and partnerships and sort of bridge that gap between animal welfare and pet lovers, because there is a big gap between pet lovers and animal welfare right now. And I think the specifically peer-to-peer fostering can save the day. So fast forward a couple of years, you know, we were building a system, basically a pet finder network type thing that would allow shelters to post their urgent pets in. Then COVID happened. And I was thinking, you know what? The shelters are going to have enough of their own problems. Asking them to differentiate between special pets and not special needs pets is too much. I need to be focusing on peer-to-peer foster. We need to, the time is now, it's urgent. Shelters aren't going to have workers that can come in. We need to do peer-to-peer foster now. I was kind of saving it on the back burner because I was afraid it'd be kind of controversial. Would shelters be comfortable ceding control over the pets in their community to just like guys on the street, women who live in neighborhoods nearby? You know, like that's, I wasn't sure we were ready for that. We were totally ready for that, turns out. And at the same time that I was having those thoughts, I happened to meet this really cool guy named Randy who had another website that was doing foster support for shelters. So this is interesting because what he was doing, completely different, was going to organizations and shelters, and he'd been doing this a couple of years, and saying, I know you need help managing your fosters, a way to communicate with fosters in batch. So you've got these foster volunteers that are all participating with your organization. Here's a way to send them text messages in batch and say, hey, it's time to get your photos updated and, you know, like, and basically engage the foster volunteers at a shelter. That's totally different than anything I'd thought of. We met through an introduction from lovely woman at Maddie's Fund and said, hey, I think you guys would like each other. It's a beautiful pandemic story. We met in Phoenix because I happened to be coming off a camping trip and was going to fly out of Phoenix to get there. So I said, oh, I happen to be here with my family. And so on a very stormy, odd day in Phoenix, the day before the everything shut down, lockdown, we were in this, you know, we met at a coffee shop because he happened to live in Phoenix that basically we were the only people there and they were, everybody was terrified. Nobody knew what to do because nobody had masks. It was like that, that first pandemic week of lockdown starting. And we come in out of the driving rain. Of course, nobody in Phoenix knows, to do, knows what to do when it's raining. And, and we meet up, we feel instantly in love. Of course, this poor kid has to meet my entire family and basically get interviewed. Within a week or so, we merged the two companies and created this sort of full service thing so that shelters can manage their volunteers and so that people can do peer-to-peer. And the peer-to-peer is cool. It's freaking terrifying, but it's cool. It's terrifying because 
There's no shelter network or backup in most communities if there's a peer-to-peer adoption. Some shelters are super progressive and you can go to the shelter and have sort of a safety net approach and they will help you foster other people in the neighborhood. But but we just don't have that mechanism yet. This is also new, right? So, and shelters during COVID were struggling because they were pushing all of their pets out into their own foster networks. And so the peer-to-peer thing is fascinating. We have people posting on the site. You can see the site at 911 Foster Pets. And you can see that, that people will say, you know, I have to be out of my apartment in two months and the place I'm going to in the interim doesn't take pets or I'm going back to my mom and our pets don't get along. But in three months, I'll be ready. You know, so I need a temporary foster for a couple months. I don't want to give up my pet. That's a pretty classic story. You know, the housing insecurity that's happened because of COVID has caused an increase in that sort of like need for these gaps. And most fostering is about two weeks. Most foster stories are incredibly positive and they have great outcomes and you develop basically a safety net among like peers. We have noticed some problems. We've discovered there's a massive gap also in the fact that many of the areas where fostering is needed the most are not the areas where we have foster volunteers, you know, utilizing sites like Cuddly and making donations and utilizing sites like ours and offering to foster. So we've got affluent communities that have a preponderance of people who are willing to raise their hand and say, I can foster. And then we have, we have more vulnerable communities where people need help. And those two communities aren't the same place. So what do we do, right? That's a tough call. That's why we asked you last week to, you know, send to your network, a plea for fosters, because we really need to increase the amount of fosters that we have, foster volunteers that we have, homes that we have that could provide a temporary place to crash because we've got to at least find some around the fringes of those vulnerable areas. I know that people are willing to drive. Like I know that I'm currently fostering two dogs for a fellow who lives about an hour away from me. And that's what we need to have happen. Uh, There's another problem in the many of us in the industry and this is getting a lot better, but there are a lot of folks in our industry who are pretty judgy and like the kinds of folks that need fostering are across the board in sort of walks of life. And I grew up in Southwest Missouri. So I know, you know, like I'm not surprised when I see that when I drive up and I see a dog chained in the yard and the super expensive car and a really run down trailer <laughs> that people are living in, like, like, like this, like the weird sort of rural juxtaposition of sort of completely resource poor, but not in some weird way. And we hear stories about, you know, we worry that some of our more affluent fosters who are most of our fosters, you know, educated, affluent are not going to be comfortable taking that pet back to that situation. Right. Right. You know, there's a lot of education that's needed and a whole lot of support that's needed from those communities because the neighbor to neighbor approach is really what's going to solve this problem. Somebody who gets that guy who has his pet on a chain. You know, he still needs a foster. That's not most fosters are not, you know, they're expecting their pet to live in your bed. We need to find those like individuals who get each other so that what we're creating when we create a foster safety net for someone is actually a lifelong safety net for each other. Like I said, I think that these people are all in, we all are in various stages of being one or another member of our community, right? Like I'm a foster today. Mm-hmm. Who knows what's going to come down the pike? If my parents in Missouri got sick all of a sudden and I needed to go out there, one of my friends and family network is going to have to take care of my 36 decrepit rescue animals. We know that. I'm so lucky. I've got this network of people who can do that, but most people don't. So, Right. That's such an important point. I mean, I know for us, we've been seeing how 
restrictive adoption <laughs> rates. I mean, it really, if, if our goal is inevitably to just like stop the needless euthanasia of animals, I mean, we need to open up our adoption restrictions a little bit mm-hmm. and be a little bit more open-minded to people's different cultural backgrounds as, because while some, I, I know for us, we see like people who are wonderful adopters or could be potential wonderful fosters. And it's like, because they live in an apartment, they might not be accepted. I love what you're saying there about kind of being a little more open-minded. It sounds like too, I mean, just the way that Pet Finder started, you said you had not really any background in the field, no like preconceived ideas about what should and shouldn't be. I wonder if that's really helped feed all of this because it feels like you're like, okay, let's look at our goal. Let's look at the data and how can we solve this? I wonder if that's really fed into being so like forward thinking in all these different areas. (laughs) I think that one of the things that made Pet Finder work and one of the things that'll make 911 Foster Pets work is this idea that what I care is that I promote your pet. I don't care who you are or what you're doing. And I don't care if you're giving the right vaccines or if you're staying and neutering your pet. And I don't care if, you know, I don't, I just don't. And I know I should care about those things a little bit, but I just can't. It's just not in me to care about those things. What I care about is that your pet's a family member. And I feel like all of that other stuff flows out of the pet being a family member. All of the reasons we want pets to be spayed and neutered will come, not because I care about spay and neuter, but because I care that your pet's a family member. You know, it won't run at large right? if it's a family member because you don't want to get hit by a car. So I think that some of my inability to focus on the myopic or my ability to live, you know, whichever one you want to call it, whether it's a, you know, a disorder or a gift, I'm not sure, but <laughs> my inability to fly lower than about 70,000 feet has driven a lot of that, that ability to, to truly operate in a judgment-free zone. That and the fact that, you know, like, like I said, I came from Southwest Missouri, so it was not the case that all of my family was educated past high school. It was not the case that, so like, you know, in the Midwest, there's fewer people per square mile, right? And so unlike in California or on the East Coast of the, and on both sides of the country, you know, when you have fewer people, it's much harder to just live in your own bubble of your kind of people. I think that's served me well, having exposure to, you know, lots of folks, you know, like all the, you know, the fanciest part of my hometown and the poorest part of my hometown in the rural areas. Like we all went to the same grade school. They were all, and we didn't know the difference really between those things. It's so wonderful to see, hear how like innovative you are with all of this. I know something I'm sure is just so many rescues can identify with, but also like coupling that with just like, okay, let's change the way we think about things in, in some ways um, and not being stuck in that. So with that, I know, okay, this all would have been more than enough, <laughs> but then now you have Heal House Call Veterinarian. Of course, we want to hear how that started, but also I really want to find out where you feel like it's really being helpful and, and why you think it's important that veterinarians can make these house calls. Well, I think that we could do a whole podcast on Heal and my what motivated me to create a veterinary company after all those years at Petfinder. It wasn't just as we talked about that I have this driving need to like define my self-worth by how much change I can make and how much better things I can make. <laughs> That's maybe a thing, but it but there's a real concrete awareness that started to happen as I as I was more and more immersed in the pet industry. And that's the veterinary world is in crisis. And yet it's the only thing that we could ever correlate with pets that stayed in home versus pets that got sent back to the shelter over and over again. And whether or not the family 
had a relationship with a veterinarian. And we knew that wasn't causative necessarily, but that's still the only thing we could ever really correlate with what kept a pet in a home. That got me interested, right? Like, so, like that, that piqued my interest. So I started thinking more about vets and learning more about vets. And I joined the Tufts Veterinary School Advisory Board. And now I'm on the NC State Advisory Board as well. And obviously I've had a lot of pets. My pets are usually sick and decrepit because that seemed like I like the old guys. So I had a lot of relationships with a lot of kinds of vets too, because I've got rescued cows and rescued horses and donkeys and cats and dogs. And maybe my favorite guy is my fox turtle, Sydney. So like, there's a lot of different kinds of vet personalities scattered in there. But one thing that was clear with all of them is, is they were in big trouble. Like I had vets crying in clinic appointments because they only had four minutes to spend with me when my dog had a real thing that needed some real thought about. And vets have surpassed dentists with the highest suicide rate in the US. Sydney's nodding her head now on our video call, which the audience can't see, but with the background in veterinary medicine, the frustration in the vet community is palpable. And I think it stemmed from, look, there are corporate veterinary practices like Banfield. There's the sense that the corporates are taking over the veterinary industry. And and it's true. A lot of vet practices have, have sold into corporations and there's been a big conglomeration. We have a lot to be thankful for in the Banfields of the world because they've done for animal welfare something that private individual vets could have never done and wouldn't have ever been able to do because you kind of have to be a behemoth in order to make some of the changes that and do some of the things that folks like Banfield have been able to do. Like the wellness program that Banfield has, you know, there are people in our midst, in our communities that would have had pets that never saw a vet. I'm not talking about like, well, right now in resource deserts, 70% of pets have never seen a vet. So Banfield has been changing that because so many people in areas where there's a pet smart, so many people that would have never seen a vet now have the opportunity to see the vet four times a year in their wellness program. Like that's a huge difference. Like that's true wellness and care continuity and all the things that are very dear to me and that I feel like my pets deserve air quotes again, guys. I have a problem with the deserve word always. You know, I do feel like I deserve continuity of care for my pets. And I like, I have this feeling inside. And so Heal is in response to the fact that I think the veterinary veterinarians were in trouble. Not all veterinarians work in a corporate environment in a satisfied way. And not all veterinarians are suited to be employees. Some of them want to build their own brand of veterinary medicine and choose their, what should be in their wellness plans and choose their vaccinations and spend 30 or 40 minutes with a pet. And those veterinarians, not to besmirch the corporates at all, but those veterinarians don't thrive in a corporate environment. And my feeling is, is that if we lose those veterinarians, the sort of James Harriet veterinarians, those guys fuel a certain kind of pet parent relationship that is really important to veterinary medicine, individualized care, pet parent relationship, creative thinking being able to try things that a corporate couldn't do. That's important to us all. If you love pets, that's important to you. And we were at risk of losing that because there was this word on the street was that the new vets, which by the way, are mostly women, didn't want to work full-time and they didn't want to have their own business because they don't want the headaches of a business. They just want to go to work and come home and get health insurance. And that's, that's what a corporate practice can provide them. And you add to that the fact that they are... In many cases, we've learned that about a quarter of vets are graduating from vet school feeling a lack of competence and confidence. And so their only option they feel like is to go to a corporate center where they'll have a big team of other vets around because that makes them feel safe 
as they get practical experience. And the combination, those things are all in and of themselves. They're all good things, but you put them all together and you end up with about a quarter of the vets out there feeling unfulfilled. We have veterinarians who said, you know, like I wanted to do, I wanted to serve the, the seniors and Hispanic people in my community. And I had this program and I pitched it to my practice owner and he, She's basically got what she perceived as sort of a glad hand and a pat on the head. Like, oh, that's cute. You want to help people. Go back to work. Go see your clients. That's leaving people feel feeling unfulfilled, which is a hard pill to swallow when you've just dedicated eight years of your life. And how much money? Like $280,000. $280,000 was average for $270,000. It's a big average for the your vet school loans. And you add to all of that, you've got people who... You know, we talked about enthusiastic yes, right? We talked about, you know, we're looking at a group of people who started wanting to be a vet often when they were in grade school. That begets the question, what do I need to do to become a vet? Well, we all know how competitive vet school is and they've all, they've, by high school, they've all heard it's harder to get into vet school than medical school, right? So at a time when I was, my biggest issue in life was it's not fair that my dad won't let me go on a one week canoe trip by myself when I was 12. And I shouldn't just have to just do one overnight out. And it's not fair that I can't go to the skating rink more than one time a week. These folks are worrying about what they need to do to make sure that they can get into the right college. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, like those passion-driven people who knew they wanted to be vets since childhood, they started making choices to make that possible very early. They are very busy in high school. They're very busy in college. They finally make it to vet school. They're there and they've been working towards something all this time. And then they get out of vet school and it's perfectly reasonable that they might be a little disappointed when they realize they don't lack the confidence to do their job, you know? And also they have about a 20 year habit of getting to something else. Mm. And that, that creates a problem. And so we, we believe that those people who should be in practice on their own and building their own brand of medicine and teaching us what the future is going to be in terms of pet parent relationships, they need a home. And so we created Heal. Uh, my business partner, Aaron O'Leary, and I created Heal to give them a home. And we created basically a business in a box toolkit so that they can feel confident that there's going to be support for all the things they don't want to do. I was in a meeting one time and I heard somebody say, this was the head of companion animal for one of the major pharmaceutical terms. We were talking about microchipping and he was in this meeting with a bunch of other people. And we could have whole podcasts on like some of the funny things I've heard leadership, say in animal welfare and in the pet world in general. But you know, he's like, the problem with microchipping is that vets haven't learned properly how to really communicate its value to pet parents. Although he said pet owners, because that was the vernacular of the time. And I thought, oh, is that the problem with microchipping? You know, he was in head of the microchipping program for this major pharmaceutical company. And I'm like, is the problem with microchipping that, that vets haven't learned how to properly market them? Or is the problem with microchipping the fact that the microchipping companies haven't figured out how to make it a value proposition or they've added so much value, like we'll fly your pet home that microchips have gotten a super, super cheap technology, which should be available to everybody has gotten really expensive. You're like, maybe that's the problem with microchipping. And don't even get me started about the ISO standards and things like that. So I'm thinking, gosh, I really hope my vet doesn't become an expert marketer of microchips. I really want her to learn more about freaking Cushing's disease, which is what my dog's <laughs> suffering from right now. Right. Vets feel guilty. We would go around and say like, what software do you use at your clinic? And they'd be like, oh, I use such and such, but I don't use it completely. I don't use it all the resources that I can from it. I'm not using it right. And I'm not, you know, and there's just so much 
headspace devoted to all the things that they should be doing better and how they should be making more money on their prescriptions or how they should not be using this or be, and you know, it's just too much pressure. I mean, it's so pressurized, you guys. So we say, okay, we're going to make a business in a box toolkit. We're going to do all the horrible stuff, you know, the stuff that vets hate. Some vets like it, but we're going to help them with social media. We're going to help them with payment processing and scheduling and all those things. And we're going to make medical record transfers fun by having somebody else do it, not having the vet have to do it if they don't want to. You know, we're going to do all this stuff so that they don't have to and so that they can go sit cross-legged, crisscross applesauce, my granddaughter tells me, we call it now, crisscross applesauce on people's living room floors and spend 45 minutes with a pet. And the cool thing about that is that when a vet goes into your home and can do that, and they have their frontal cortex is all like freed for creative thought, you know, she can turn around and she can be like, you know, Betsy, I'm supposed to be here working on Jim, the hound dog, but Jake is really fat and you need to do something about that. (laughs) You know, like she can see other things going on in the home. She can see whether or not Jim, the hound dog is starving because he's got a metabolic issue or because Jake is eating all his food. You know, like she can, you know, like sneaking in there, you know, like she can, she has the time to tell me about, Hey, she saw this really cool box where the fat dog couldn't fit through, but the skinny dog could, you know, and that's where you put the food, you know, like, Oh my gosh. And it's been really fun. So we've got now seven practicing vets who are doing house calls and building the practice of their dreams. And what's really cool is that half of them have come to us saying, when we say, what's the practice of your dreams? We'll help you promote it. They say, we don't, you know, you're not going to like it. And they say, well, we're like, well, try us. And they said, like, well, I really, really like to serve underserved people or do access to care. And we're like, ah, contrary. Like, we will only be successful and happy if you are successful and happy. So our job is to create happy vets. And we believe that happy people, pet parents, happy pets will all follow if we can keep happy vets. So half of our practice owners are doing these things that we're really excited about now called impact practices, where they're serving 25 to 50% of their clients are in care deserts of some kind, resource deserts. I'm sorry. We're not supposed to say care deserts because that suggests people don't care about their pets. Of course, everybody knows. I know that we all care about our pets, but yeah, these resource deserts, I'm trying to be disciplined in my vernacular for this podcast so that people will know I'm a professional. I'm sure everyone will practice empathy yeah. though, right? This is <laughs> a <you>. judgment-free zone. <laughs> of course, this is a judgment-free zone. That's right. I think that the house call vets have a little corner of the market that could really change how veteran change the trajectory of veterinary medicine. We can't lose that relationship with the vet and the pressures in a typical clinic setting are so great that that's at risk of being lost. And house call vets, which used to be kind of for a while, they were kind of the redhead stepchild of the veterinary industry are, I think going to have a resurgence coming into vogue and which is as it should be, right? The original vets were house call vets or cave call vets or whatever it is we would call them, which is fascinating because now not unlike farm vets of, and the multi-animal vets of yesterday, we now during COVID, our house call vets were all doing porch calls. So there they are right outside again. And of course, ours are, ours are super high tech with their iPads. And, you know, and one of our goals is to say that like this low tech concept, this back to the future kind of idea where we take vets out of the clinic setting, but we fuel them with a lot of cool technology so that they can enjoy themselves and have a quality of life. Some of our vets just work two days a week, three days a week, maintaining that quality of life. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, moving away from like, it almost feels like almost like a little factory setting where they're like, you have this Mm -hmm. amount of time to 
And I mean, even just like you have to imagine the emotional toll of, I had a rescuer explain to me recently what, what a vet is going through. You walk in and you've got a puppy and you walk in the next room, you've got, you've got to euthanize this animal. You go out and walk in the next room, it's TPLO. Walk in the next room and it's a mystery disease. It's got to be just like at the end of the day, I don't know how they don't just like collapse on the floor. It's exhausting. A lot do. Yeah. They do collapse on the floor. In some case, you know, they don't get up these days. I mean, it's really tragic, but I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, that what I, I was blown away. You know, we have these vets we talked to in interviews. I've got two things I want to say here. So we did this interview for a, a pilot project we were doing in Colorado and, and we interviewed, we had 16 vets who would be great at it. And of those 16 vets, like 80% of them cried in the interview. Hmm. Like this is a community of people that, you know, and they'd had like to a person, they had not had a vacation day in over a month. Mm-hmm. This is what I learned from those people, which was fascinating. They work an eight hour day or a 10 hour shift. And that's what they're told when they come into the clinic, that that's the thing. But that in many cases, all of the aftercare and the paperwork and research they have to do before they leave the clinic, but that's not part of their quote unquote shift. So if you're talking to a vet or you have a friend that's a vet who's working an eight hour shift or a 12 hour shift, that doesn't include the four hours of additional stuff that they have to do to basically show up the next day. I don't quite understand that. Like that doesn't resonate with me in a way that makes sense. Like that's such a mill. So like the idea of you've got these people who are like the most highly trained, highly professional people in the community, the most trusted people in the community. And somehow they are accepting positions that pay them based on a schedule that's in fact not the schedule that they're expected to work it is really strange to me. And evidently that's super common. So I've that was a new concept to me. Well, no wonder they're crying or passing out on the floor because they're still doing another couple of hours of work after they finish their work and they're not compensated for it. So it's not valued. Well, that explains a lot to me about some of the experiences I've had with veterinarians. <laughs> you know, right. like, like, oh, I didn't get follow-up after she said, I'll send you the such and such. Well, now I get it because you had to say that to 20 patients today and then you had to squeeze it all in before you left. I think that that it's not just that people are crying when they're interviewed with us that blew our minds after that experience where we were trying to hire, you know, we were trying to hire a vet for, for a house called Pilot. But what really surprised us is that a year later, those people who were self-reportedly miserable in their positions, all but for one of them or two of them are still in the same position. Like they couldn't accept our position because it was a limited time. It was going to be about a year and a half. And so they couldn't accept it, but they also couldn't take on the risk of starting something that only had a one and a half year possibility of existing. And we said, well, no, we're going to build a practice and we'll build this practice together as a part of this pilot. And then we'll give it to you. But there's risk there. There's an unknown. And this is a cautious group of people, thankfully, because they're dealing with the healthcare of our pets, right? They didn't have the wherewithal because of their debt and because of family pressures and because of real life, they didn't have the wherewithal to leave a situation in which they were miserable to accept a situation that had a little bit of perceived risk. Now, we know that at a, in a corporate setting, you can get fired at any time. So you probably, They probably had more control over building success with us because they could actually control whether they grew a successful practice over whether or not they could get fired in any minute. So it's it's not even perceived risk. That's I mean it's not it's risk that's not even perceived correctly in many cases. And so that was 
eye-opening to us. And it's eye-opening to us to see them still when we look back at those interviewees in their same positions that they were in, where things haven't gotten better. They're still miserable, but they're safe in that environment, they feel. So we've created a project at HEAL that's, that's in direct response to that, where we're saying, okay, we know vets want to have impact practices. We know that they want to serve people in access to care situations. We know shelters and rescue organizations need a veterinarian. And if they can have a house call vet, they could save all this time transporting and stuff. And so we went to an, a cool organization called Beyond Fences in Durham, and they've become good friends of ours now. And we paired her with a house call vet that wanted to be a house call vet and had joined HEAL, but was starting a new practice. And she was taking on all that risk herself, right? She's a particularly brave person. She used to be a cop and she wants to go help people in Durham where she used to serve as a cop. And so we went to them, we said, what's your budget for non-surgical medical stuff? And they told us, and we said, well, spend some of that in a stipend, a monthly stipend, guarantee April a few thousand dollars a month. And she will guarantee you these spots in her account in her schedule. And let's test this out. And what we're finding is that little cushion, that little lack of risk that April has to take on has made the biggest difference. And so now we've gone beyond with our veterinarians, we've sort of gone beyond the original intent, which is to create sort of the business in a box toolkit so that they could focus on the art of medicine while we focus on the art of business to now saying, it's got to be bigger than that. We've got to go find vets who are unhappy, unfulfilled, unrewarded, and we've got to help them create an environment where they can thrive. And we've got to teach them how to evaluate risk and how to evaluate opportunity because they are some, not all vets, obviously not, you know, like not all vets, but those vets that are in this crisis of which there are many, unfortunately, they don't feel empowered to make the changes they need to make. That's been something I've been spending most of this year on this concept of the impact practice where the vets will spend about 25% or 50% of their time in a, in a access to care space or, or care desert. And so, and I would like to say, we're so appreciative of your, your listeners all know a lot of vets, right? We have referral fees that we pay then a rescue organization with a lot of relationships with vets in the community could make a pretty good chunk of change in donations if they would refer us vets because we will pay 500 to 1,000 vets. We've even sent people to Hawaii <laughs> or had programs where we send people to Hawaii. Actually, COVID struck, so they didn't get to go to Hawaii. They went to they went somewhere less exciting like Akron, Ohio or something on their vacation. But nonetheless, <laughs> like maybe Florida, but maybe it wasn't bad as, as bad as Akron. Sorry, Akron. We're very appreciative of that and we need we need help finding those vets in those communities, the vets who are, who are kind of dying. Absolutely. So where would they go then to send you a referral? What a good question. And what a bad spokesperson I am to not have already said those words. Healhousecall.com is our URL, or they could just email me, Betsy at healhousecall.com. And I know, aren't I crazy? It's like it's 1995 and I'm just putting my email out there. I know you're really rolling the dice there. I don't <laughs> we used to have our phone number in the newspapers. Oh we would put our, our email address oh. and phone number in the newspaper. Uh oh, now they're going to look up back issues. I know. The <laughs> uh, right, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting. I feel like you're doing so, so much to just like save animals, make people and vets like happier in the work they're doing. Yes. Really, it's just a whole community outreach, it feels like at this point. So we're so honored you were able to come on. I know we talked about so many things. So maybe we'll have you back in a little bit to, to touch on a few more in, in depth, because I'm sure this is going to be something that is just so valuable to so many people here. So thank you so much. Thank you. I will give you an enthusiastic yes to your invitation <laughs> to come back. <laughs> have a great week. 
Bringing Betsy on was really such an honor. She's worked in so many different successful organizations and has such wonderful experiences helping animal rescuers, pet parents, and veterinarians alike. We're so honored that she was able to come on and we hope to have her on again soon. If you want to learn a little bit more about everything she's doing, you can check our show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.